Hello and welcome to episode 234 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How's it going? Hello, Jason. It's going well. It's going well. It's been a busy week so far. Yes. Aviation and non-aviation stuff, so we're moving through it. But right now, I am in the middle of what is going to be an excellent, excellent adventure for all of our YouTube channel viewers and by extension, our podcast listeners, because they're getting a heads up that this video will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. It is the build of the Concord Lego set. Oh, I, I thought you were going to document, you know, physically moving to a new house. No, build, no, no, building, no. That would be weird, but building the Lego Concord, that's some high quality content. Yeah. So I'm in the middle of that now. Had to take a break to record the podcast, of course. But you'll definitely want to watch the video, not only because it's awesome, both the Lego set and the actual Concord. We're going to chat a little bit about the history and uniqueness of Concord, but also we'll be giving away a set what? in the video. So stay tuned for that. So that's what's in wow. progress right now. But as Jason alluded to, yeah, we're also moving house. So that was the that was uh, <laughs> I forgot to mention this a couple of weeks ago. A few people at Dorkfest came up to me like, "Are you okay?" I listened to the <laughs> podcast. Are, are you okay? Is everything okay? Is there anything I can do? I'm like, "No, no, no, I mean, no." It's, in it's, that time span, <laughs> no, you were very much not okay. You were extremely right. stressed and and far from okay, but in a good way. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a good way at this point, but yeah, buying and selling property is not my idea of fun. If you're not stressed when you're moving, or in your case, selling and buying a house, you're yeah. probably doing it wrong. Well, then I guess we're doing it really right. Okay. But to answer a few people's questions, I totally forgot to mention this last week when we came back. Yeah, everything's fine. It's good stress. It's good news, but it's stressful nonetheless. So yeah, there you go. So that's what's going on, Mike. What's going on with you? How are you this week? Fine, just All right. busy with work and very uninteresting otherwise. But I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the weather cooperates on Saturday because the good people at Tailwind, the seaplane operator here out of the Hudson River in New York, has graciously invited me for a flight. But that flight only works if they can see where they're going on the East River. So I'm yeah. really hoping that the weather forecast improves because it's doing anything but these days. Anything but improving. Yeah. Well, we'll talk more about the Northeast later on in the show. We have a very good show today, not the least of which because my newest colleague, Chris Lomas, joins us later in the program. Chris joined my team at Flight Radar 24, focusing on content. He is going to join us to talk about his journey and his flight with Airbus on the route proving flight up to the North Pole. Chris now holds the distinction. Not that I'm jealous at all, but Chris now holds the distinction for the first non-Airbus employee to fly the A321 XLR. Hey, that's something. That's pretty cool. So he'll be on later in the show to talk about what is route proving, what are they doing, why are they just flying around Europe and across the Atlantic, and why that's an important thing. But we also have important news. It's important for two reasons. One, it's a big deal. But two, we talked about it on the show last week before it actually happened, and we were right. All right. That so rarely happens. <laughs> we very rarely check all of those boxes. But as we talked about last week, the FAA has upgraded Mexico's aviation safety status to category one, which 
entails a host of new opportunities for both Mexican and U.S. airlines to open new routes, expand existing routes, add code shares to a variety of flights, and just all around better for travelers. And also, you know, the safety part is a big deal too, that Mexican authorities, you know, satisfied whatever safety concerns the FAA may have had. And the FAA is comfortable saying, yes, you can fly here. US airlines can fly there. And now everybody can move about the continent. Yeah. I don't think anybody anywhere in this process expect this to take so long because this this took years i think people thought this would be weeks or maybe months but years was i don't think anyone had that i would have to go back to the tape but i think when this happened we talked about you know a process of a few weeks you know thinking that it was like a paperwork issue or there was you know something fell out of certification that needed to be rechecked and then it went on for a little while and we were like okay this is this is getting interesting yeah we did not anticipate this taking two years no i don't think even anyone at the faa would have anticipated that but things really really must have been out of whack down in mexico for it to take this long because there have been other countries knocked down a peg by the faa that responded quicker than this but it's good that everything is back to where they should be or at least they have a pathway back to that status what this means is that mexican airlines can now resume adding routes to u.s destinations which i'm sure they are absolutely going to do very quickly but it also means that code share agreements can be reinstated so Delta and Aeromexico, for instance, they have a very close partnership that's been suspended for years at this point, and that's no small deal. There were a lot of people going, I know, going down to Mexico that were paying a lot of money compared to in years past because these code shares were in place and capacity was way down. So hopefully those code shares are reinstated real quick, some capacity is reinstated real quick, and fares are brought down quite a bit. Yeah, so a win all around for both the airlines and consumers who are looking to book tickets. So great news all around. And I guess hold off on booking tickets to Mexico for just a few minutes while all those things get put back into place. We also have an update on a story that we talked about, I think, a few weeks ago at this point when we were discussing elderly state aircraft, shall we say, when the German government's A340s had some issues and they said, well, we're done with them. Turns out they're not quite done with them. The German Air Force says, well, they're still airworthy. We could use them and we fixed the problem. So why don't we keep using them? Because they're not scheduled to be retired yet and we don't really have a full replacement ready. So they could be back. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. Weird story to just outright say, yeah, we're going to retire them as soon as possible. And then just a couple of weeks later, decide, you know what? Maybe not, because it's not really that they needed to fix a couple problems that were reoccurring rapidly at one moment. It's the older the aircraft get, the more parts break down, the more time the aircraft needs to spend in maintenance. So things like that add up. So it's, it's a little weird that they'd decide to unretire, not unretire, but not retire at all these aircraft at this point. But I guess if they don't have the A350s or other aircraft in the same numbers. I mean, we're only talking two aircraft here. Right. But if they need them, they need them. So I guess that maybe they'll end up doing less critical government flying, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they'll use them within Europe only. So if they get stranded somewhere, they could still take a commercial flight. I don't know. But what this does mean for us 
us avgeeks is that there will still be at least two more A340 VIP aircraft out there for us to all gawk at. And that's a win for everybody. <laughs> there you go. I wonder if it was the case of the foreign ministry being like, we're retiring the aircraft and the Air Force being like, wait, what? <laughs> just Would you like, mind just sharing it with us? Like a fait accompli. We're done with the – if we say it, if we say we're done with these, we won't have to fly them anymore. because That's right. Them. If you will it, it will happen. <laughs> It'll happen. That seems to be the case in this next story where a company just kind of willed paperwork into existence for aircraft parts that – there was no pedigree for these parts. They made them up. They made up the paperwork. And now United, Southwest, and Virgin Australia have all had to go find parts because of this one company based out of London. Yeah. And you know what? Tell the listeners the name of this company because it really just brings it all together. AOG Technics. Ah, and if you're not familiar with the term, AOG means aircraft on ground, which these aircraft will presumably be until they find replacements for these parts. So I like how that all brings itself together. Yeah. I mean, this is such a weird story because all the time, aircraft parts have detailed records about where they came from. So they're manufactured and there's all sorts of stamping and tagging and documentation about when they were manufactured, what part it is, what engine it can go in, or what part of the aircraft it can go in, and all sorts of that stuff. And then you have parts suppliers and parts aggregators that will buy these parts and then you know warehouse them so that they can be purchased by airlines or MROs or things like that. And then you have AOG Technics, which basically was making up certificates and approval tags for a lot of these parts. You've got CFM 56 high pressure compressor, stage one vanes, GECF6 part, multiple parts within the GECF6 engine, and then all sorts of other CFM 56 engines. So all of the documentation was made to look like it came from the manufacturer. And then they were just making stuff up. Yeah, that's unusual to say the least. This reporting comes to us from Bloomberg, who says they were in contact with United and said that the parts were discovered in a single engine on each of two aircraft, which were already undergoing routine maintenance. But this is going to cause United to actually ground the aircraft and swap out the entire engine before they return to flying. So just, just a weird story here. I hope the proper people are, are held responsible and it really just sucks for the airline that they're going to have to take aircraft out of service and find spare engines when spare engines are hard to come by these days. So just a strange, strange story. I mean, it's strange, but one of the things that I think this highlights is kind of the commitment to safety on the part of both the airlines and the regulators, because this was flagged by multiple operators. And then when it turned out that this was bigger than just a few parts, this seemed to be you know hundreds of parts, EASA got involved, the UKCAA got involved, the FAA is involved. I mean, notices have been- Noticed. Yeah, notices have been noticed. They're combing through all of these documents to ensure that every single part has the proper paperwork. And so I think- for me, the, the takeaway is one, why would you do this? And then two, you, you know, know, it's, you know why. Well, you, I mean, you know what the answer is. Come on, everything comes down to whoever AOG actually is. Just wanted to make a quick buck. 
but I hope they see some consequences come their way. There you go. But yeah, good on everybody taking it seriously, and we'll hope that it comes to a speedy and very safe conclusion. Speaking of making a quick buck, Qantas wants theirs back from Alan Joyce. After Joyce retired from the airline a few months early, he was supposed to leave in November, left at the beginning of September. After an acute loss of trust, says the airline's board, they want $9 million back. 9 million US dollars, which I think is 13, 14 million Australian dollars. And they want their money back because they said, well, why are we paying all this money if you're leaving, you know, in scandal and without our trust? So that's going to be interesting to see. The Qantas board has also reconfigured the compensation structure for some of its top managers to a much more customer focused. Compensation scheme. Interesting. I'm all for it. You know, if they want to claw back 13 million US, I'm, I'm sure he's being paid well and above that. So I'm all for lowering executive compensation. And if really in a case like this, if it was so bad that he resigned early after he was already going to exit, yeah, they probably have a good case to get some of that cash back. And, and really, it should go to the passengers who ended up having their flights that they never intended to operate canceled. Wouldn't that yeah. be nice? Well, I mean, that would be- Bring it full circle. Bring it full circle. It would be nice that the passengers or not quite passengers, customers, shall we say customers, but not quite passengers. But yeah, it would be nice if they were were made whole. But that lawsuit's still working its way through the Australian courts. So that could be an entirely Uh, separate issue. In a fund, whatever they claw back from Joyce, they could put in a fund. And by the time the courts settle this in possibly years, maybe they can pay- these hypothetical passengers off the interest and then reinvest the rest in the customer experience. How about that? Sounds good to me. All right. Make it so. All right. So here's an interesting story that came out in a safety report and then Flight Global's reporting on it today, actually. A Ryanair 737 departing Venice had to get involved and play air traffic controller a bit because there was an approaching aircraft and they had not received their takeoff clearance from the tower controller. There was an Iberia A321 on approach to Venice and Ryanair had been instructed to line up on the runway and wait. There was a controller shift change between the lineup instruction and the takeoff clearance and the controller that took over the shift plugged their headset into the wrong port. And therefore could not communicate with the aircraft. But did not know it. They were issuing commands over the radio, but those were going to a phone line that wasn't connected to anything at the moment, which is not particularly helpful. And it took a little while for them to figure that out. And in the interim, the Iberia jet, and by the way, the conditions were not great at the time, which is why this was so problematic. Um, Quoting from Flight Global here, fog meant horizontal visibility was down to less than 500 meters with a cloud base of just 100 feet. If you're getting a call back here to Southwest versus FedEx in Austin a few months ago. This is an extremely similar situation here that was kind of resolved by dumb luck almost in this case. And in the same manner, in this case, the Ryanair crew realizing 
excellent situational awareness in this case, realizing what was going on, that they hadn't heard any commands to them, nor the approaching Iberia jet. They got on the radio on guard. What's that frequency? 121.5 to tell the Mm -hmm. Iberia crew on the A321 to, hey, we're still here. Please don't land on top of us. Unfortunately, those radio calls were in vain. They were not heard by the crew. Don't really know why. I believe crews are always tuned to the guard channel, 121.5. Please don't meow over that. In cases like this, you actually need to be able to hear and understand and not ignore what's going on. But thankfully, at the last moment, when the A321 was just 400 feet over the ground, the controller was able to figure out what was happening and maybe used, not quite clear, maybe used a different headset or a different handheld radio to issue the command to the Iberia 321 and potential disaster was very closely averted yet again. Yeah, just an odd situation. But thankfully, thankfully it all worked out. Italian Air Navigation Service developed safety protocols that you would think would already have been in place about non-optimal times to conduct a shift change. And it turns out conducting a shift change in between lining up an aircraft and giving departure clearance for that aircraft is probably not the ideal time to do that. So they won't be doing that in the future, which is just a good rule that everyone should participate in. And maybe put some labels on those headphone ports. Yes. No idea how or why that happened. I understand one phone jack looks like another. I don't know. If it's happened now, it's almost certainly happened in the past. But yeah, let's maybe label those a little clearer. There you go. What do you say we take a quick break and we'll come back with our conversation with Chris to talk about root proving on the A321 XLR and his experience and what that's all about. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. We are now joined by my colleague, Chris Lomas, who began working for Flight Radar 24 just this past April. And Chris has really hit the runway running and jumped into a bunch of different stuff. He is a commercial pilot, and so he brings a wealth of experience already about flying and aviation to the role that we've tasked him with, which is explain aviation to other people outside of Flight Radar 24. So Chris is writing for our blog. He's, well, as part of what we're going to talk about today, he's making video content for us. And today, he joins the podcast for the very first time. So Chris, welcome to AvTalk. Hello, Ian. Great to be here. It's great to finally make it onto the podcast. It's, uh, If anything, I'd say that the last few weeks, I've mostly had aviation explained to me, which has been really refreshing. I mean, it's, it's nice to have it that way around. Yeah. So we've done no shortage of work with and about the 321 XLR. I want to say we, this goes back to probably September of 2021 when it was on display at the, I believe it was called the Airbus Innovation Days or the Airbus Summit in Toulouse. And, and we got a nice walk around and we spoke with Malcolm Ridley, who was the chief test pilot at the time. And then as we followed the progression of the certification of the A321 XLR, you this week had the opportunity to fly on the second route proving flight for the aircraft. So I guess we start with the question is, what is route proving? Absolutely. I had to get it defined myself. So Essentially, route proving is a kind of a common parlance for what is actually referred to as functionality and reliability testing or FNR testing. Now, what that actually means is that 
the aircraft is operated on a series of flights, some of them point to point, some of them kind of round trips back to sort of Toulouse and back. And the idea is to test what they call system maturity. And system maturity is making sure that all of the onboard systems, whatever they are, are capable of being run to an extensive level for a long period of time in a lot of different circumstances, like they would be in an airline and in different kinds of airlines. So in layman's terms, we've gone from does the plane work to will the plane work for an airline? Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. So some of the things that we've talked about with the A321XLR being different than the the A321 and the A321 or the A321, the A321neo, the A321LR and now the XLR which I don't think they really have anywhere to go as far as naming convention is concerned. So this might be <laughs> it for this one. But some of the things that we've talked about that are are unique to this particular aircraft are well the range and so that center fuel tank which becomes part of the fuselage along with a number of other modifications to the wings and obviously the engines are you know part of the neo package so on the route proving flight take us through from kind of the beginning through what did you do what did you see what did you experience sure well Essentially, it starts off in the early evening with a safety briefing. So that's a crew briefing. I was able to sit in on, I'd say, about 15, 20 minutes of that. So that was looking at the weather en route, some of the operational concerns they had, the plan for rostering the pilots throughout the trip, that kind of thing. For context, the route, which we will and have shared on social media, was pretty much a route directly to the North Pole from Toulouse and turning around and coming straight back down. So essentially, the briefing was the weather's pretty clear, we're expecting a smooth trip, and we're going to have plenty of time to take a look at those systems from the monitoring stations in the aircraft. So Fairly straightforward. We bought the aircraft. I think this is probably about 8.30 local time. We're scheduled to go at 9 p.m. Have a quick look around the aircraft. Have a quick look in the flight deck. The aircraft itself is one of three XLR testbed aircraft, but it's the only one that's actually fitted with an indicative cabin. So I had the choice of business class or economy seats. I think you can probably guess which one I went for. I went for a business class seat, took a seat, and we took off very quick taxi from the test center at Toulouse to the runway. Most of it done by the tug, which I'm told is partly for convenience and partly for sustainability reasons, which is really good to see. Straight to the runway and pretty much straight out into a clear sky. And we got up to the cruise, I'd say, in well under 20 minutes, really quick. And I think before we knew it, we kind of had a dinner service. So one of the things I was really interested to see from a test flight as someone who's not been on one before, as well as actually looking at the things that are being, you know, tested, was how do they eat? You know, how do they sleep? And the answer is it's very similar to how it would be as a passenger or as a crew member in an airline operation. So we had a meal pretty soon after departure, I'd say under an hour after departure, that was a hot meal. And then I spent some time talking to Jim Fawcett, who's the flight test engineer on this particular trip. One of two flight test engineers, I should say. He sort of took me through a little bit about which systems they were looking at. And in the case of the XLR, as you've kind of inferred, the big differences are mostly in the fuel system. So they were particularly looking at the fuel system management computer and understanding how that was behaving over a long flight. Jim Fawcett was on a previous episode for those that remember the conversation about the A321XLR's first, I forget exactly what they termed it. We'll have to put a link in the show notes, but it was the 
extra long flight where they drew the XLR because they just needed to fill up the tanks and then empty them. So instead of just flying around in circles or flying up to the North Pole as they did in this particular flight, they drew that XLR off the coast of France. So we'll put a link in the show notes to our earlier conversation with Jim. But Chris got a bit more time with him. You were in the plane for what, 11 hours? It was. It was just over 11 hours. So on the personal side, that's the longest I've ever been on a commercial airplane. I've not been that far away yet. And in theory, I still haven't been that far away, just been on board <laughs> for a very long time. But what was interesting was to spend that amount of time on a narrow body. I mean, even if we look at the average transatlantic sector that's being operated by currently by the A321LR, if we look at the typical JetBlue kind of sectors or the SAS routes, you know, we're looking at eight and a half, nine hours typically. So, you know, this was 11 and it is a notable amount of time spent on an airplane, of course. But the thing that really struck me was it didn't feel particularly like it was being spent on a narrow body. And I did spend some of that time in economy seat to get a better view of the wing, and it was not uncomfortable. And this aircraft isn't even equipped with the full airspace cabin. This is just an indicative cabin. So those kind of very subtle rearrangements they've made in the cabin with regards to the galleys and the seats, they do seem to work. As someone who flies on A320s and A321s so frequently, they definitely seem to work. So after dinner... You're talking with Jim about the fuel flow and the tank and all of these things. What else are they looking at as part of these? I mean, essentially all of this, and this is a 10-day, 100-hour test. As we're recording, the aircraft is still powered on. We talked about this in the last episode. They're leaving it powered on, which I didn't know was a requirement. It's fascinating to see. For roughly 10 days and flying for 100 hours, over 15 flights, And as we record now, Chris and I are sitting here on Tuesday, the 19th of September, and the aircraft is high above the Atlantic in between Dublin and Miami, off to visit customers who have orders as well as potential customers to see how the aircraft operates. So what else are they looking for? What are the folks that are sitting there at the test centers in the back of the cabin? What are they keeping an eye on? Well, broadly speaking, they're keeping an eye on everything. And I think that's important to emphasize. You alluded before to the fact that there's essentially a lot of hours that they just need to fly in some way, shape or form to get to that certification level. So what they're really doing is looking at every possible combination of type of flight they can do and testing every system in those contexts. On this flight particularly, however, we're heading into the polar air. When they talk about polar air, they were keen to emphasize that can mean either northern or southern polar air, so that kind of cold, dry air. And these aircraft, of course, are going to be operating in polar airspace quite a lot, particularly in the north on these transatlantic routes. So one of the other things they were particularly looking at was some of the polar navigation aspects behind the aircraft systems. So Well, one very visible example would be that once you get above a certain latitude, it's very difficult to navigate using a magnetic heading reference because the the compass effectively isn't working the same way. And the aircraft is switched on to using a true heading reference. Now, I think it was above the latitude of, I want to say maybe 67 uh, degrees north. I may have to check that. But the aircraft will put out a warning and say, guys, you need to change to a true heading reference. If the crew doesn't do it, the aircraft will do it by itself once it passes that latitude and pop out an oral warning in the flight deck. So one of the things we were testing was to see whether that would happen, for example. And at that stage, I'd actually had about a 20-minute nap, which they very kindly woke me up from to show me this in, in action. We go up to the flight deck, we pass that latitude, we get the warning. The crew don't take any action deliberately, and then it changes over. works absolutely perfectly. So there's those kind of elements that are unique to this particular kind of flight that they're testing as well, as well as kind of every other system. And, of course, the system's in the cabin as well. You know, there's a reason that we're being provided with a hot meal service. It's not just 
out of comfort, although it was pretty good. It's also because we want to understand that the the cabin systems, the ovens, the galleys, everything just kind of functions in sync with the whole of the operation. So you've got multiple teams that are working on the same aircraft at the same time. And they may be testing different things. But again, we're going back to this. It's making sure that an airline can use this aircraft when, you know, upon certification, they can start delivering and airlines can put it into service. So this is an 11 hour flight and Los Angeles to Paris is 11 hours. And that to me spells, you know, you want to have a full crew. And so how many pilots were on board to make this kind of as most of an airline operation as can be? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, the crew, it was quite an extensive crew on board. There were three pilots in total, two flight test engineers, one test flight engineer, which is different from a flight test engineer, who is effectively doing almost like a kind of a a center seat role in the flight deck, plus two ground test engineers. So of those three pilots, you have the pretty typical airline operation. You have pilot flying, pilot monitoring. They're both captains in terms of experience, all Airbus pilots. And basically, they take off with the same and land with the same two crew. The third pilot supplements the crewing throughout the flight. They take regular breaks. Now, they have a few options of what, what kind of breaks they can take. They can either sort of work for longer and sleep for longer, or they can work for a shorter period of time and sleep for a short period of time, rest for a short period of time. And that was the option they were taking. So each of those pilots was typically working about two hours and then taking between a 30-minute and a one-hour break. So they were kind of keeping quite fresh on the flight deck. Interesting. Interesting. And I know that this particular aircraft is set up with a model cabin thinking, you know, kind of a a demonstration cabin, but what was the crew rest facility on this particular aircraft? So Jim Fawcett from Airbus very kindly explained that the the airlines actually have quite a lot of autonomy when it comes to choosing the kind of crew rest areas they have. They're actually quite loosely defined. Now on this aircraft, there is no, or at least on this configuration of this aircraft, there is no specified crew rest area, say, underneath the cabin, you know, full of bunks like you would have in something like an Airbus A330 or, or a 777. It's a, it's, it's a smaller airplane, so there's less space to play with. Now, what we have in this aircraft is, from memory, what was referred to as a Class 3 crew rest area. And that can be one of two things. It can either be a single business class seat or a row economy seats. And that has to be able to be sealed off with a curtain of some kind. So basically, it's like a kind of the sort of sort of curtain that divides first class goes on a rail around a particular seat or a particular row of seats. So that's either a seat or a row of seat, which in an airline operation is not going to be available to sail to passengers. In this case, both options were available, but it seemed that most of the pilots I saw resting tended to prefer the economy seats so they could have a lie down. Because the business class seats, if memory serves, are basically just the recliner version. They're not full flat business seats in this particular cabin setup. Yeah, in this particular cabinet, there are sort of very basic, albeit very comfortable, but very basic indicative business class seats. So I'd say you've got about sort of uh, maybe 20 degrees of recline, something like that. Gotcha, gotcha. So I guess the last thing that I wanted to, to bring up was that this was a flight to nowhere. Basically, you, you, you took off nearly due north out of Toulouse, got to the North Pole, and then turned right around and flew south. What does that do to your body? It's a weird experience because if you think about it, flying, especially if you're flying from somewhere in Europe, it's quite rare that you're taking a long haul flight that is directly due north and then directly due south because there's kind of nothing there. I mean, we can talk about, you know, Iceland and places like that, but of course we went beyond that kind of level. So the first weird thing 
is that you kind of have the sunsets and sunrises happening to the left and right of you. It's a little bit peculiar and it feels like you've experienced an unnatural amount of sunsets and sunrises. So it's quite hard to know when to sleep and how long for. And I think that it really that really kind of emphasized to me the point that they were making about how careful they are with choosing when the crew rest and giving them a certain amount of autonomy and choosing the best time to rest as long as it's within the, the regulations. The other really good thing about that kind of route is that you've got a really strong opportunity to see the Aura Borealis, which we did see. Uh, now, we saw that about, I'd say, kind of uh, in the Greenland Sea, so kind of east of Greenland, about a third or a half of the way through the flight. And it was absolutely stunning, like really excellent view of, of the Northern Lights. So that was, a, that was a really good bonus as well. But it certainly messes up with your body clock, and I definitely needed a, a day and a half almost of recovery afterwards to kind of sink <laughs> So it must be very challenging if you're working in that kind of environment rather than just sitting there watching the Northern Lights and uh, and eating the delicious food. (laughs) But that is certainly not all you did. And we'll prove that with a blog post that Chris has on Flight Ridge 24 blog. And also we'll have a video on our YouTube channel in the next week or so that kind of walks through everything that Chris got up to on the A321 XLR route proving flight. Chris, thank you so much for A, going on the flight and then B, coming on the podcast to talk about it. And go check out the blog post now as well as be on the lookout for the YouTube video. And I know I'm looking forward to seeing that as well. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk to you, Ian. Thank you. Welcome back. That concludes a conversation where I think I masked my jealousy. Yes, I did too because I wasn't involved. But <laughs> I'm over here thinking about how I'm not at all jealous. There you go. There you go. Hey, good news for Air Baltic, which has not had a whole lot of good news in the past few years when it comes to their A220 engines. But it sounds like they're ahead of the curve as far as getting most of their engines back. Yeah, I swear, this is the first time we've heard any sort of even relatively good news about anything relating to Pratt & Whitney engines, especially with Air Baltic here. It's all been doom and gloom for a long time. I think even recently we talked about- Last week! Last, last week, week we talked about how bad this was going to get and it was going to get worse before it gets better. But Air Baltic was so far ahead of these <laughs> problems because Things it's an so exclusive operator of the Airbus A220, which is exclusively powered by the Pratt & Whitney DTF engine. So it's acutely aware of all these issues that may impact other airlines a little less, but it says issues are getting a little better. It's fleet, I guess you could call it, of wet leased aircraft, of which Aviation Week reports it has six at this time, is down from as many as 13 in the peak summer weeks, which is natural that they'd have fewer now that summer has ended, but they are saying that it will be reduced to zero by November which is pretty fantastic. And a quote here, the engine issue is easing at the moment. We get many engines back from service. With that, of course, the pressure reduces to take so many wet leases, so we have a lot less flying now. That's a quote from Air Baltic CEO Martin Gauss, who told that to Aviation Daily on September 19th. He went on to say, we'll soon come to a situation where we have no engines missing. Normal engine maintenance cycles will continue while Air Baltic does not expect to experience a minor engine shortage next year too. That should not be as extreme as those experienced this year. So good news. Aviation Week goes on to say the airline's looking to what lease 
three to six aircraft for that expected shortfall. So half as many as last year, I guess, for next year's summer peak. But good news for Air Baltic, who had to bring in some very odd aircraft. Oh, yeah. I think recently I saw operating the ex-BMI, ex-British Airways mid-haul A321s, which are the ones with like the legit business class and seatback screens in economy that unfortunately BA retired during COVID somehow found their way to some weird wet lease operator, which somehow found its way to Air Baltic. So very much not an A220, but very happy to hear that Air Baltic is, seems to be on the mend. Yeah. I will celebrate any good news that we can get as far as the gear turbofan engines. I mean, and, and good for Air Baltic because they've They've just suffered so much. But they've done an excellent job they have. of, of That's navigating. True. I think we need to get in touch with Air Baltic and get Martin Gauss on this podcast. Bring him to discuss back. The whole situation. Bring him back. We, we need to discuss this because things have happened. I think Martin Gauss might have the, the CEO sandwich card. He might be the leading CEO sandwich card. So we'll, we'll have to get him a sandwich. All right. From Blimpies, of course. Exactly. Exactly. We're, we're not going to, just because he's CEO, we're not going to buy him a nice sandwich. We're not getting Subway here. I mean, this is a strictly <laughs> Blimpies podcast. Speaking of wet leases, that's what Air Belgium's going to do. And that's all they're going to do. They are getting out of the scheduled passenger service business. Were they ever really in it? That's fair. So they tried it for a while. And French leisure carriers, French long haul, low cost carriers, undercut them on price. And so they got out of most of those markets. And then they were focusing on South Africa. And they say, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore either. So their two A330-200s and two A330-900s are going to be employed elsewhere. One is currently dedicated solely to the Chicago-London BA flight. The, the second daily flight is currently operated by Air Belgium. So that leaves them with three A330s to do with whatever they please on their own, but it won't be scheduled passenger service. They're going to go back to all wet lease, which is how they started, and then they're going to return their focus to more freight. They have A330 freighters as well as 748 freighters. The company has a minority ownership stake. Hongyong Group has a minority ownership stake, and those are the liveries that you see on the A330 passenger to freighter conversions as well as the 747-8Fs. So that minority ownership stake is more interested in the cargo. And then Air Belgium says the scheduled passenger service just isn't working out for us. We're losing money. So we're going to we're gonna move away from that and go back to the wet lease only. So it seems like a, a decent plan. I mean, the things are going well as far as the wet lease and the, and the freight goes. So might as well stay away from what are clearly loss-making activities flying between Brussels and, and Johannesburg and Cape Town on a triangle route. All right. Well, there's always demand for these wet lease wide body aircraft. And if I have to be on a wet lease wide body aircraft, an A330 900 Neo doesn't sound not too bad. bad. No, not, not bad. too bad in the grand scheme of things. Picking up new aircraft to them is Swiss and, and Edelweiss. They're picking up a handful of X Latam A350s. And those aircraft will join the fleet in the summer of 2025, even though they're not joining till not even next summer, but the summer after. A few of them will initially stay in the Latam cabin configuration. So that'll be interesting. You'll be on a, a Swiss Edelweiss flight with a Latam 
cabin. I don't know if they're going to paint the aircraft ahead of time or just kind of leave them as is. Yeah, not the first time. We saw Delta does this right now. They have a handful of Exletam A350s also still in the Exletam interior configuration because I guess the lead times for cabin interiors these days is just so long still, that even yeah. though these won't be inducted until 2025, it's just still not enough time to refurbish these. And I think they said the first handful will have the Latam interior while later aircraft will have the actual whatever it is Edelweiss ends up with on the interior, which is, I mean, that Latam one's not that bad. It's fine. It's serviceable. But what this really means is that an airline that I think exclusively on the long haul side flies the A340-300 will no longer be doing so. So the days of that aircraft are really seemingly coming to and then they'll maybe maybe they'll give them all to the German government. Maybe maybe they'll all end up in Lufthansa, who seems like it'll be the sole <laughs> operator of the type in, in in no time. I think Swiss itself still has some. I think mm-hmm. yep. maybe Lufthansa has a handful. They end up here in, in New York all the time. Yeah, it's a rare aircraft, but not yet extinct. Going going almost gone. Jason, when you think new Pacific Airlines. What destinations come to mind? Reno and Nashville. Oh, well, in that case, wait, are you running an airline? I'm running an airline called New Pacific Airlines. And because I still can't fly over the Pacific because of many annoying many reasons. reasons. I'm flying wherever I can. And apparently wherever I can is Reno and Nashville from Ontario. Yeah, twice weekly flights from Ontario beginning mid-November to Reno and Nashville. I don't know why we keep covering this. It's stupid. It's almost meaningless, <laughs> but it's just – it's interesting. It's become a project, I think. It's just interesting to watch this poor airline flail around. Like they had a good idea. They were going to be yeah. the Iceland Air of the Pacific and then things just said, no, you're not, at least not for now. So they're doing what they can. I admire it. It's just these routes are just picking them out of a hat. Like Ontario to Reno, we already saw – an airline in the last couple of years tried to do flights to or from Reno. What was it? Express Jet's little thing? It was uh-huh. uh, – what did Express Jet uh-huh. – aha. Uh-huh. But, they, but they were doing E-145s and you can't carry skis. This might be the thing to do. You can put a lot of ski boots on a 757. Sure. Okay. Good luck. I really hope they can start actual Pacific flights someday in the near future. But the next time, new Pacific Airlines, ex-Northern Pacific Airways, what was it? Whatever it is, I think they changed Airways. Yeah, it was Northern Pacific Airways. Now it's New Pacific Airlines. Next name change is just going to be New Airline. New Airline, New Airline X. And when they launch yet another city, we will bring it to you. But I promise we will not talk about it again until they do something new. Fair enough. This is an interesting one because we've covered Indian aviation much more in the last, I want to say, six months than we have probably in the past few years, just because there's so much going on in in the Indian market. And this one I thought was really interesting. And, and Jason, I'm glad you flagged it. Akasa Air, which is a, a startup airline in, in India, has had to cut flights because enough pilots have defected over to Air India Express. This is baffling to me. So you would think that Indian aviation right now would have a surplus of pilots. We've seen 
so many of their airlines shut down recently from Jet Airways to is SpiceJet still operating? Why, why am I thinking SpiceJet doesn't operate anymore? SpiceJet doesn't operate anymore, right? Yes? No? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. No, no, yeah. go on. No, they don't operate. <laughs> to go. <laughs> go air or go first. So there are so many. There should be so such a surplus of pilots in India to get to the point where yet another Indian airline is having so many pilots walk out that they've had to cancel 600 flights in August and are potentially canceling 700 more in September. This comes from a Reuters report that they're, they're, this is all caused by pilots resigning and shifting airlines. Like This doesn't make sense to me. It should be an airline market at this point, not a pilot market. I'm just not understanding what's happening in this market. I want to go back because I think we had some confusion there. SpiceJet is still operating. They are in trouble. They are in trouble. But okay. they're still operating. So I, I, I just want to, yeah, I just want to clarify that before before we get angry emails. Yes, yes. Or even polite emails. I wasn't quite yeah. sure about that. Yeah, they, they have been in trouble. There has been some some rumbling about uh, about their future operations, but they are currently still operating. Well, apparently it's so acute at Acasa Air that they might have to shut down. There's a risk and, and they're, they're telling the course that they, they have lost so many pilots, they might have to shut down. And the funny thing is they're moving primarily to Air India Express, which is an airline that won't even, I think they're absorbing or being absorbed into Air India proper during this whole privatization. It's, it's so confusing to me. I don't understand this market, but it is, it is fun. To watch from a distance. If you're a 737 pilot in India, I mean, the world is your oyster. Yeah. So this airline has, uh, Reuters says, 72 Boeing aircraft on order. So I don't know, maybe I hope it isn't the case that this airline has to shut down because of this, but uh, some Boeing orders might clear up in the near future. That would suck. I think the last thing India needs is losing another airline. No, this is getting out of hand, but I'm entertained by it, if nothing else. If nothing else. Well, you know what entertains me because it affects you mostly? Rude. <laughs> so I promised we'd get back to the Northeast and airports in the Northeast. So the FAA extended the slot waivers from, I think they were due to expire next month and said, we're going a whole nother year. So now October 26, 2024 is the date on which the slot usage waivers expire for Northeast. I'm using Northeast loosely because DC is included in this, but really the, the affected area has been the New York area. And it's interesting that we're talking about this today because the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, spent, I believe, 962 hours in front of Congress today, which as we learned today as well, is pretty much the number of flights he's taken since he became the Transportation Secretary. Yeah, thank you to uh, David Shepperson for sending so much information out about this. But so we didn't have to sit there and listen to it ourselves. Mm -hmm. But apparently, Secretary Pete has taken six hundred and seven commercial flights since taking office just a couple of years ago, which is an astronomical number. I don't know anyone who has been on that number of flights. So I think the man is highly qualified to provide insights on the commercial aviation sector and guide that department on what it should or should not be doing as long as it equates to the passengers and how airlines treat them, because that is a, a staggering number of flights. 
And that's just commercial. He's also flown on military aircraft and the FAA's own fleet. So I think that's pretty incredible that he's been on that many planes. Yeah, that many how flights. many government officials at his level are so deeply involved in the very thing that they regulate? That's I can't imagine that there's really like does the Secretary of Agriculture go out there and like plow farms or anything like that six hundred and seven times? Since they took office, <laughs> probably not. I can't think of a better example right now. But if you can, send us an email. Oh boy, the Secretary of Education is just sitting there taking tests. <laughs> you can tell that Jason has a deep familiarity with farming. Yes, farming yes. terminology. Uh, so many John Deere tractors. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so long story short, things are not great in the Northeast. Things are not great generally throughout the air traffic control staffing levels, but especially in the New York area. And that was one of the topics for discussion today in front of Congress, where I believe Buttigieg called them unacceptable. Yes. The levels of staffing. Potential government shutdown is not going to help the situation. No. At all. No. I mean, there are so many reasons that is a bad thing. But I mean, we're trying to recruit air traffic controllers. But then if every few years, you have to work under the threat of being forced to work because you still have to work, but you're not going to be paid. I mean, you'll get paid eventually. 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 Sure. Yeah. But it could you take know, a day. It could take a week. It could take a month. What did the last government shutdown last for? It was it was a good while. It was a good while. Yeah, that's not right. So let's not get into wait into the political I'm just speaking purely from an air traffic control recruitment and retention perspective. Yes. Would you like to work in this extremely high stress, mandatory, overtime, unpaid for a number of weeks position? I don't know. That's not a great pitch. No, it's certainly not. But they say they're working on it. So I guess when we have more information on that front, we will share it with you all. But in the meantime, this is episode 234 of AvTalk. Thank you so much all for listening. We've had a great run of the last few episodes where we've had some great feedback from listeners. So thank you. If you do have any feedback on this episode or the podcast in general, or you want to hear us talk about something, or you want to yell at us because we talked about something, email us at podcast at fr24.com. You can also go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Tell us how we're doing. And that helps other people find the podcast, and we appreciate it so very much. In the meantime, I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. <laughs>